You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Larry Bloom. Larry is a professor of philosophy and distinguished professor of liberal arts and education at UMass Boston. His research interests include moral philosophy, race theory, and moral psychology. He is the author of six books, such as I'm Not a Racist, But The Moral Quandary of Race, and his latest, High Schools, Race in America's Future, which students can teach us about morality, diversity, and community. In this episode, we talk about teaching race, slavery and the construction of race, more asymmetries and racism, resentment and guilt in the classroom, teaching in a Trump era, and much more. Hello, Larry, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Well, I'm very pleased to be interviewed by you and to be one of the people in your podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Larry. Larry, I must I must ask, how did you get interested in philosophy? I just randomly took a course in college. I wasn't interested. I didn't really know what philosophy was when I came to college, and I thought I was going to be like a math or physics major. I took one philosophy class. I it was pretty interesting. I took a second philosophy class from a guy named Walter Kaufman. He's kind of well-known in an earlier generation. He translated Nietzsche and wrote a book on Nietzsche. And um, that kind of turned me on also, and it sort of helped to shift me from from math and physics to philosophy. So I majored in philosophy. But what really got me into philosophy was, of course, on ethics that I took with Joel Feinberg. In my, It was in my junior year. I was already a major, but this is the thing that, that really made me love philosophy, Joel, Joel Feinberg's. Do you remember anything from the course that like really got you excited? Somehow the whole idea of thinking philosophically about ethical questions and trying to figure out like what made something right or wrong. I don't know. That just like blew my mind. And I just <laughs> like, was completely obsessed with it. I, I wasn't that happy in college. I didn't have much of a social life. So philosophy kind of filled up all the rest of the space and just anything that Feinberg could feed me. I just like devoured it was trying to figure out how did we know what was right and what are different criteria of rightness and you know, all these different theories uh, within within philosophy of what makes something right. I just got obsessed with all that. So you've, you've written a lot about race. You've taught college students for decades, but you've did something very interesting that a lot of college professors have not done. You ended up teaching a few classes at the high school level to high schoolers on race. And that's the thing that sparked the the book that you presently have out now. How did you end up teaching a high school course on race? I wasn't always interested in race as a philosophical issue. I was basically a straight moral philosopher for, I would say, something like 20 years. And then I got interested in race in the 80s because a group of African-American philosophers were just starting to write about race. People like Bernie Boxall and Tommy Lott, Howard McGarry, Bill Lawson, just uh, Adrian Piper, a bunch of different people were, were, were just kind of approaching race philosophically. And I remember that it took me sort of a while to get how this thing counted as philosophy, which makes me understand why it is that a lot of philosophers are still 
don't get in a way why race is a philosophically important issue. They might think it's a politically important issue, but not quite get the philosophy. So I'm confessing that you know, partly because of my generation, I can remember not understanding why race was a philosophical concern. So I was very affected by this group of philosophers, and Tommy Lott was also a colleague of mine. But also another uh, equally important influence me on me at the time is that I have three kids, and they went to the public schools in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, um, especially at that time, though still still true, is is a very racially diverse city, and the, especially the public high school population is more diverse than the city is, in a sense, and especially it's more diverse than the kind of Harvard community, you might say. And I got involved as a kind of parent activist in racial issues at the at the elementary school. It was a K through eight school, elementary middle. And I teamed up with two other black parents and we kind of ran a little group. We called it the race and class committee in which we would sort of have people come and talk about concerns they had, either teachers or parents, racial issues at the school or race sort of culturally related racial issues. So, so that just kind of drew me into a concern with race. And it just, you know, partly because of these other philosophers, it started bleeding into my professional thinking and I just drifted into work on race. And now that's the main thing I do. And it was, it's been the main thing I've done for about 20 years, but at the same time, I also started teaching in the education program at UMass Boston. I taught a course on anti-racist education. And so I was teaching pre-service teachers, people who weren't yet teachers. And I was feeling a sense of dissonance that I had never experienced a classroom, you know, b below the college level. And yet I'm teaching these people to go into those kinds of classrooms. I wasn't sure what to do about it. But one day, just by chance, I was talking to one of the history teachers at the high school. The high school is just the, a big, comprehensive public high school that serves the entire city. It's the main high school. It's basically the high school that everyone goes to. And this teacher was a, had been a teacher of one of my kids, and I asked her about the extremely diverse high school that that's minority white and has kind of every group and there are like 70 at the time there are like 70 different home languages cambridge is also a an immigrant receiving city so that's part of the ethnic diversity as well and i asked the teacher whether she thought that the diversity among the students was being made use of in a good way by the uh, by the school and by the different courses in the school. And she thought about it for a minute and she thought, well, we could be doing a better job. So I said, well, I would be interested in running an after school program in, in which kids from different racial groups talked about race. I have no idea why I thought I was qualified to do something like that. <laughs> I just moved in the moment. And she said, well, let me talk to the head of social studies and uh, get get back to you about that. So the next day, the head of social studies calls me and she says, your idea is good, except can't have an after school program like that because students have too many different things to do after school. What you'd have to do is give a whole course hmm. at the high school. And how long would the course work? Is it just like a, a semester, a quarter or a year? So at the at the particular time, the school um, has changed the way it's organized. But at the time, there were semester long courses. So she was basically suggesting that I teach a semester long course. I have no training as a high school teacher. I have no idea 
why I agreed to do it. She she almost left me no option. She kind of <laughs> said, well, you wanted to do this after school thing, but the only way to do it is to give this whole course. So you're going to give the whole course. That's a, that's sort of the way I remember it. And so I was then on the books for the next semester. After teaching it that one time, I also taught it with a, a black graduate student of mine who was in, in in my education class at the time. And the school wanted me to pair up with a teaching assistant of color. Okay. So I wanted to do it and they wanted me to do it. So that worked very well. And so I taught this this course, you know, I didn't know what I was doing the first time out, but then they asked me back three more times in three successive years to to do the course. So I taught it four different times. And of course, over the years, I got I got better at it. You know, I sort of learned to I sort of felt like the last time I did it was the first time I really knew what I was doing. But it was a really, really fascinating uh, experience to teach it. So I was very happy each time they re-invited me to come back. It, it was just, you know, something that I'd never experienced anything like dealing with high school students. They're really different from college students in, in a lot of ways. And like I say, I didn't know what to expect, but the, the students were from a lot of different racial groups and the school sort of and the, and the guidance counselors helped me sort of shape the class so that it had a certain demographic that basically mirrored the demographic of the larger school. So the largest group in the class were always black students and white students were never more than a third. That was like a little bit of a rule. You can't completely enforce those rules because students sign up for courses partly just what they want to do, but it's in consultation with their guidance counselor. So it's, you know, semi-voluntary on their part. So I had a different demographic each time, but it was sort of around the way the way I'm describing. And the classes, the racial groups were very internally, ethnically different, as I mentioned about the different language backgrounds. So, so for example, Cambridge has a lot of Haitian students, the Boston it's kind of a Haitian receiving area. And there were a fair number of Haitian students as well as other Afro-Caribbean, um, you know, Anglophone students as well as the Haitian students. And the, the Latino students were also always from very different national, national backgrounds. So there was a lot of both ethnic and racial diversity as well as the economic diversity that the public school system in Cambridge uh, serves. It's less true now, you know, 15 years later, because this, the city's gotten much more gentrified than it was then. But, you know, as I say, it was, it was extremely diverse, and that was part of what was fascinating about teaching. In the book, you lay out some of the, the lessons that you went through with the students, and you also kind of lay out some things that you learned from the students. So let's kind of talk about some of those lessons. On the first day of class, you had students introduce themselves and also tell a racial or ethnic stereotype that they object to. Why do this on the first day? It was a little bit artificial, I have to admit, but the idea was I wanted something that every student would be able to contribute to. I mean, I want, from the first day, I wanted to establish the idea that this is a class that everybody is expected to participate in because it's such a you know, charged terrain talking about race. I thought it was really important to establish the idea that 
nobody was going to be able to sit back and let the other kids kind of take the lead, that everybody was going to have to do it. And everyone has a stereotype of their group that they object to. So I just thought it would be something that would be a way of getting that, that kind of buy-in from the, from the students. And I also thought that the I wasn't sure about this, but I thought that the stereotypes that they came up with would then be useful later as uh, reference points to come to come back to. So, you know, the, I, I wasn't going to critique each stereotype when it came up the first day because that would inhibit a little bit. I just it was just a, really a, an icebreaker in a certain way, just to have each kid say some stereotype of their group that they objected to. And then, you know, each student was learning from the other, but I wasn't inviting them to challenge the stereotypes or to to probe very deeply. I just wanted them to hear each other out. I wanted everybody to speak. And I mean, I actually did by by first having them pair up and report the stereotype that the person in their pair said. So it was even one more level of trying to have a get to know dimension yeah. to this to this exercise. It was always a stereotype of their group. Yes, I asked them so I, I wouldn't have had to do it that way, but I did I did do it that way. I had it it had to be a stereotype of their group, but they could think of their group in any way they wanted to. So okay. I had one girl who had a black parent and a white parent, and then she had an anti-white stereotype that she picked. And I didn't say, oh, well, why did you do that? You know what I mean? I just like let her pick that. And that, I mean, she didn't say that she had a black parent and a white parent, but she is a student who um, presented her. I mean, I learned this afterwards. She was also a student of my son who was a high school teacher at that same high school at the same time that I was teaching or so, some of the time that I was. So I knew from him that this girl presented herself as a black kid, so to speak. Okay. So the fact, and she looked like a black kid, so you would say. But the, so the fact that she presented a white stereotype, I thought, you know, I just filed that away for if if that would come in handy later. It it was a, a kind of way of coming out as mixed. It's okay. an indirect way of that girl's coming out as mixed in the class. You have a lesson on on moral symmetry and race, where you talk about whether it's equally wrong, for example, for black students to exclude a white student because of his race. You've written about this. So I want to first know, what is your view? And did it differ from your students? If so, how? Well, I think of it more as a sort of a framework issue that there are both symmetries and asymmetries in thinking about race. So, I mean, the stereotype thing that you asked me about before is an example. Every kid had some stereotype that was objectionable about their group. So that you could say that's a symmetry. It's something that everybody shares. On the other hand, each of those stereotypes carried very different social meanings. So there was one girl who was um, African, and she said Africans are, you know, seen as, you know, spear chuckers or something like that. It was a very degrading stereotype. Whereas I can't remember the white stereotype, but it wasn't all that, you know, like preppy. That's right. So somebody said, yes, white kids are all thought of as preppy. Well, okay, that that's something that there's reason to object to, but clearly it doesn't carry the, the stigma that the African girl stereotype carries. So so that's an asymmetry. So I think I sort of feel like the whole issue of symmetry and asymmetry, it just comes in in a lot of different settings. And it came in in different settings in the in the class. 
So one of the places it, that I discuss in the book where it came in was around a reading that we had done from the black abolitionist writer, David Walker, who's, who's not as well known as he should be. He wrote a really important and quite fascinating book in 1830. And we read some, some portions of, of that book. And he is criticizing Thomas Jefferson, who had died just a few years before. But, but, you know, Jefferson, as, you know, most, many people know anyway, had written these very demeaning things about black people in, in a book that he wrote in 1787. And, and Walker has this kind of outraged, response to Jefferson, but it's also very argumentatively structured. So it's, it's, it's just a fascinating text because it is both so outraged and yet it's developing an argument. So he takes Jefferson saying that black people's skin color is unfortunate. And then he, he just like tears that to shreds. So I had the students read that aspect. And then I kind of asked them what they thought about his saying, well, basically, Walker says, every person has the skin color that God wanted them to have. So that, you know, that's a very complicated idea. Not, not all the students believed in God, or not all of them would agree with that view exactly. But I, I wanted them to engage with Walker and kind of say, you know, he's saying that black people should be able to have pride in their skin color rather than shame in their skin color, as Jefferson was implying. But then I asked them, do you think he's also implying that white people should take be able to take pride in their skin color? Because after all, God gave it to them also. So that just prompted this fascinating conversation where the students sort of implicitly recognized the asymmetry in the, in the sense that they recognized that expressing pride in a white skin color just has a completely different social meaning than expressing pride in being black and the skin color of being black. And they were kind of struggling to figure out how to articulate that difference. You know, so some of them would say, well, it should be the same. But if a white kid said, I, I'm proud of being white, I would be upset about that. I would object to it. But they weren't quite sure why. So it was it was a fascinating conversation that I that I sort of recount in the book in which ultimately they got to a sense that there are these different meanings attached to skin color and pride in skin color, depending on your group, and that those differences are a product of history. So, so that's just, it's just a way that both the symmetries and the asymmetries were always kind of coming in to these conversations, some more than others, but came in in several different places. And I report a couple different times in the book where that issue came in. And it wasn't always something that I planned. I did plan that Walker one. But other times, this is one difference between the high school students and the, and the college students, is that sometime the, the conversation would just go in some direction that wasn't something I planned, but which once they started down that path, I thought, this seems like a good path. I'm going to let it keep going. And so they sometimes brought up issues, for example, of skin color, where I hadn't planned to do that, but it seemed like they want to do it. This is an important issue and a, a productive conversation can come out of that. What are the different ways that you discuss slavery in the course and, and how did, how did students respond to them? So the slavery aspect of the course was, a, it was a very important and central issue in the course, but I just want to clarify that it was connected to a way that I had framed the course as being about the historical development of the idea of race itself. 
So I was trying to get them to understand, you know, what's now the consensus view that the idea of, of, of race as we understand it in the West is not something that was always there. It, it was a sort of a product of slavery and, and colonialism and, and kind of certain scientific uh, ideas that interacted with with slavery and colonialism and kind of rationalizations for those those oppressive systems. So I, I was very eager for them to recognize race as this historically constructed idea. A, a very small number of them had been sort of exposed to that idea before, but none of them had studied it in anything like the depth we did. So changes in the character of slavery were also connected to changes in the development of the idea of race. And so the history of slavery was being looked at in part because it was important in its own right, and in part because it connected to this, to the understanding of the idea of race. The study of slavery was quite serious. We read some slave narratives that were very painful and difficult and, and sometimes charged to discuss. But many of them, while they had often been exposed to slavery and other courses that they had taken, they basically thought of, had a kind of frozen image of slavery as kind of the plantation system. And they hadn't understood the the changes in how slavery wasn't always like that. And sometimes it had more of a kind of personal servant dimension and there were differences in different parts of the South. And then, of course, there was slavery in the North for a long period. And then that had a different character than this, the plantation form. So just even understanding the the differences, the regional and historical differences was something they hadn't been exposed for. Now, of course, you know, studying slavery is, on the one hand, it's this thing in the past, and the fact that it had happened a long time ago, I think, sometimes made it easier for them to engage with it without having to bring it into the present. But on the other hand, I wanted them to bring it into the present and they were sometimes inclined to to do that. And just sort of like think about, well, what does slavery mean for us now? And like I had an exercise in which I asked them to write down what the experience of studying slavery had had meant to them. And they came up with different kinds of things where some of them would say something like, uh, you know, the, some of the black students said, well, when I read about slavery, I realize that my own problems are not as serious as I sometimes think they are as, as a teenager. Hmm. You know, sometimes they would say, I feel pride in my ancestors because they, they struggled against this, this terrible system. And some of them just said, I'm really glad that I live now and not then. So, I mean, there was a real range of different views. You know, one of the things that some people worry about teaching slavery in in mixed groups because they get worried that the black students will will come down on the white students and and be resentful and the white students will just go into either either guilt or resentment. But I, I sort of feel like that's, I can't say that never happens, but it didn't happen very much in my class. And I think it's partly because I worked very hard to create a, a space in that class where every everyone, so I didn't assume that anyone had all this knowledge of, of slavery. So it was like a, it was like a joint project that all of them were engaged in to learn this history of, of slavery. And 
it was intellectually challenging. It was difficult. It was difficult material that we read. It was college level, college level material. So the intellectual challenge, I think, in a way helped to mute a pure sort of way of teaching slavery in which you emphasize that white people oppressed black people. So, you know, some, some students, of course, did sometimes say that it made them, you know, feel resentful of white people, but it was usually of white people who put down the study of slavery, who would say, oh, that was back then, you know, why do we need to study about that now? So it wasn't really white people as the people who are the current <laughs> instantiations of the group of people, you know, back in the 1830s, so much as it was people who now had a, a view of rate of uh, slavery, sorry, had a view of slavery that was objectionable. And I was, you know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable and healthy response that they wish that this kind of material was taught in more courses in the in the schools. And I thought that was good. You mentioned in the book that you were discouraged about having a class on the N-word. Why, why were some teachers worried about this? And what did you learn about your students after an unplanned discussion of the topic came up? So it wasn't really other teachers who had criticized the teaching. It was an African-American parent oh. who I talked to in a meeting that was one, it was a meeting that the school held to have parents have more input into the curriculum. I thought, so I thought it was a really good thing that the school did. And so I had in a previous year, I had taught a, a unit on the N-word, and I had a kind of pro and con setup for that particular unit, and I was planning to do it again. And this meeting with the parents was right before the next year's uh, class. And the African-American parents said, it's fine for you to teach that at the college level where students are mature enough to see this as an issue that they can discuss uh, kind of dispassionately and look at both sides. But she felt that at the high school level, it should be a disciplinary issue. That is, we should just say, you cannot use this word in high school. And so the teachers should have a disciplinary way of dealing with it. And, you know, I, I was very caught up short by this by this parent, but she was an extremely thoughtful person. And so I, w I really took seriously what she said. And I couldn't, I just couldn't completely figure out what I thought, but I just decided to play it safe and take that unit out. I thought, you know, maybe this parent is right. She probably knows more than I do about this. So I'm going to do what she says. I, I always felt ambivalent about going down that path, but that's where I went. But the thing is, you know, as I was saying before, you can't control a high school class like that. And one time the issue came up in class. I can't remember exactly how I talk about it in in the book. I can't remember how it came up, but it started to come up. And then I thought, oh, yes. So when, when Mrs. Pinderhues said that's not her real name, I don't use anybody's real name in the, in the book. So what Mrs. Pinderhues said is that I should just crack down on this and say that you can't use that word. But I couldn't figure out how to do it. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so I just sort of thought, okay, I'm just not up to this challenge. I didn't think through how I would do the thing she said. I just you know, thought in my mind, I'll do it. But then when it came to it, I couldn't do it. So the, the, the conversation, I guided the conversation. I actually think it was quite a productive. How, how did it come up exactly? How did the students bring it up? 
So this is what I can't remember my show. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. I can't remember, but it, you know, they would just bring up different stuff. <laughs> they would bring up a lot of different stuff. And I would sometimes say, well, that's a little too off topic, but this time when they brought it up, it, it just came up in an organic way. And it was a really fascinating conversation, which I, I report on in the book. There was a wide range of opinions about it. I mean, the use of the N-word is this very charged thing in these mixed high schools because the non-black students hear the black students use it in a kind of expression of solidarity or even sometimes of affection towards another black student. And the non-black students can't quite understand why they don't can't use the word themselves for their friend or especially for their black friend. So this is like one of these asymmetry issues. So so they kind of like have a sense that it's diff it matters who's using the word and there are symmetries about who gets to use it and who doesn't. But they haven't generally been in context where they've been invited to to sort of think through why somebody could get to use it and why somebody else gets to use it. You know, they don't talk about that in their courses. This is actually one of the reasons that I thought it was good for them to have this conversation. So there was a wide range of views among the black students there. No one thought that it was a perfectly fine word, but they differed as to whether they actually thought it was wrong of a black student to use it. Some black students did think it was wrong. So one, some black students kind of thought what Mrs. Pinderhues thought, that basically it's just a word that nobody should ever use. Mm -hmm. But some of them thought, well, I'm not that comfortable with it, but my friends use it and it's okay for them to use it, but it's not okay, especially for a white person to use it. And they, you know, I made them sort of articulate why it mattered whether, you know, what group you were in affects your permission to use a racial slur. That's a general point moral point about asymmetrical use of racial slurs but it is it applies especially to the use of the n-word which is more charged really than than almost any other uh racial slur it was very interesting and it, the dynamics of the class were very interesting because in the beginning only black students spoke which is very unusual and i think it's because all the non-black students thought i'm not getting into this this <laughs> I'm sitting this one out. But then, the, you know, over time, though, the the <laughs> the conversation developed in such a way that there seemed to be an opening for non-black students. So, you know, like one of them would venture in and their venturing in made it easier for some other student to venture in. And at some point, basically, you know, every student felt like they could they could chime in on that conversation. I'm going to throw out a few words. Um, all of them are often thrown around when we're talking about pedagogy. And I want you to tell me what they mean to you. Okay. Expectations. So in, in the field of education, which now is one of my fields, expectations is like a mantra word. It's a word that is constantly used. And so part of my response to it is it's a word that has become somewhat meaningless in a lot of educational contexts because it's sometimes used in such a way that implies that if a teacher has high expectation of a student, a student will always rise to what that teacher expects of them. And that's how we can get over all of the 
problems that various students, because of their their economic and familial and communal circumstances, bring to the school. So sometimes it's used as a way, to me, of denying the inequalities of kind of school readiness that different students have. So I'm in that sense, I'm suspicious of that of that word as it's used uh, as, as it's used currently and frequently in educational discourse. At the same time, of course, I do think expectations matter, and that if you do, if you expect very little of a student, that's very bad, and especially if your expectations are race informed, so that you expect less of certain racial groups and others, that's really terrible. You know, it's likely to have some depressive effect on the engagement of those of those different students. So, I, so I do think expectations matter, but I don't think that they are the sort of answer to all of the problems of educational inequality. And that's why I have sort of a mixed reaction to that one. Okay, next word, potential. You know, some, sometimes people can can use potential in a way that is kind of like a certain student has, you know, like they have a C average on the work that they've turned in. But you kind of see little flashes where the student has done something that is, you know, shows that they're capable of more than what they normally come up with. And so that's a use of potential that I think is is very concrete and grounded. You kind of mean if you put your mind to it, you could be doing that kind of work much more than you're now doing. And you're, you know, you're not, you're not living up to your, your potential. It's a kind of identified potential. That is something the student has actually done. Now, of course, it's also possible that a student might have potential, which they've never given the teacher any evidence of. Hmm. But they still might have that potential. It might be a potential that has been suppressed through, you know, unfortunate educational experiences before or family experiences or something that kind of depresses that kid and keeps them from being in touch with a whole part of themselves, which could really take off in in a really positive direction. And so I think teachers, especially at those lower levels, but I guess this is true at any level should be on the lookout for these little, tiny little flashes that some other teacher might miss. Yeah. You should sort of, in a way, never think that a, that a kid's capabilities, that you've seen all of the kid's capabilities in the work that they've shown you. I think you should always be on the lookout for something that goes beyond that, and you should sort of push them to try to do it. And whether you say they definitely have the potential you know, I'm not sure this could get into some philosophical <laughs> speculation about that. But but I but I do think that you should always be be looking for the students to be able to go further. You should always sort of push them further. You know, I do think the word potential can sometimes have the same mantra like uh, thing that expectation does where you say, oh, the kid's potential, they all, every kid has tremendous potential and all that. It can become this very meaningless thing that keeps you from actually engaging with the concrete students that you actually have in front of you. I mean, I definitely had students, I had one student that I can remember who, who barely passed and he would occasionally do something that showed that he had a certain capability that he wasn't usually realizing. And I and the TA worked with this kid really hard to try to make 
that part of him flourish more or flower more. And it just, it just didn't happen very much. I think maybe that kid just had a kind of academic potential that maybe it got developed, maybe it got developed later, maybe it didn't. You know, there's, there's a lot of injustice about who gets to develop their potential and who doesn't. And I think there's also a lot of chanciness, what teachers you encounter or adults you encounter in your life or even other, other peers you encounter in your life as to whether something sparks that in you or not. Last word, diversity. Well, you know, I, I'm aware that I talked about racial and ethnic diversity in, in my, and economic diversity. I don't like the use of the word diversity just purely by itself. I think it's, it's, it's too sort of tepid and has become somewhat meaningless. And I'm, I'm actually worried that it gets in the way of having a really anti-racist way of, of thinking about education that, oh, we have all this diversity. So we're so great and <laughs> solve all these problems. So I think it can get in the way of, uh, of, of, of a truly social justice orientation or an anti-racist orientation towards education. And it's the Supreme Court's fault in part because they have said basically that you can't have an anti-racist justification for affirmative action or basically hardly for anything, but you can have a diversity one. So, you know, ever since the Bakke case from 1978 and then reinforced in the uh, Bollinger case, the Grutter case from 2003, diversity has just gotten lodged as the, as the allowable justification for race sensitivity in, in admission and other aspects of, of college life. And that's, you know, you, you have to deal with that because the Supreme Court made it happen, but it really gets in the way of clear thinking and it gets in the way of, 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 of a firm commitment to a kind of social justice or anti-racist perspective on education, which, you know, is one I, I think we should all try to have. You say that you hope that your book will encourage college professors to consider making arrangements to teach a course at a local high school. Why? I just thought it was such a fascinating experience. And I thought that professor who, who was a, spe- a specialist in, in race studies, which is something which, you know, some high school teachers in some sense are that. But, you know, as, as the kind of scholar that you're allowed to be at the university level, I think that can really contribute something important to a high school class that they wouldn't necessarily get from their other teachers. And then I guess another reason is kind of a selfish reason, which is that it's so completely fascinating to teach 17-year-olds about this racial material and to see what they come up with and the ways they engage with each other and the ways they engage with this challenging material. So I was partly saying to other professors, you know, read this book. Doesn't this look like a great thing that you would really like like to do. But, but you know, when you put it to me that way, Maisha, what, I, what I'm really concerned about is that more teachers teach this material at the high school level. I'm not really saying it has to be university teachers at all. I mean, I'm equally writing for a high school teacher audience. In fact, I'd say the book is really more aimed at a high school teacher audience, but I was also had had a kind of a side glance to my my university colleagues. I'm hoping to encourage people to to try to teach this racial material more and to sort of show that there's a way of doing it that won't 
make it so painful and so like you're dealing with a minefield every day when you face a class. I sort of wanted to show that there are ways to to manage that and to make it a, a rewarding experience for the instructor. So let's say there are some people who are listening, high school teachers, college professors, and say, you know what? Larry is encouraging me to teach race. I mean, this sounds very interesting, very rewarding for both students and teacher. However, I have a few worries, right? And perhaps one of their worries may be that teaching race could be considered as a way of promoting blame and guilt. You know, anytime you teach about, about systems of oppression where one group has victimized another group, well, that's what's happened. And so I do think it's actually a responsibility of all teachers to help students recognize that on the one hand, just because a certain group in the past victimized another group in the past, that doesn't mean you as a current member of that group did the same thing as your ancestors did. So on the one hand, I want them to recognize that guilt doesn't pass down through the generations in that same way. At the same time, they do have to recognize those those structures that are built around group treatment of, of other groups. And they hopefully all, you know, I'm, I encourage them all to feel some responsibility to make our society more just. It's not a responsibility that falls only on white students, but white students inherit a system of privilege. And that privilege is different from guilt, but it means that you have some responsibility to to try to, to correct for that unjust system that you that you benefit from. And sure, it is, it is hard to do that. But I I think, I don't think guilt is an entirely inappropriate response to, to some of these things that they're learning about. I don't think it's unhealthy for people sometimes to feel guilt. But, you know, like I say, I don't encourage a misplaced sense of guilt. And I, I want them to take responsibility for their own behaviors. And sometimes they engage in things that they, you know, that are wrong, that they should feel should feel guilty about but i don't emphasize or encourage other instructors to emphasize foregrounding blame and guilt i mean that that doesn't help with the kind of systematic and historical and sociological understanding that you would hopefully be promoting in these kinds of courses about race you're trying to understand the understanding is something that everybody in the class needs to have. And the the guilt and the blame are sort of around the edges of that. The main thing is is the understanding and then the thought about, okay, what can we collectively kind of do about about these things that we've just learned are are unjust? And I think students I mean, this is another thing about high school students, they or at least the you know, the ones that I encountered, they have a quite strong moral sense you know, it's not always totally sophisticated, but it was often pretty sophisticated, actually. And they, when they talked about like incidents around the, around the high school and whether they should intervene. And, you know, if somebody from one group uses an insult from a kid from another group, they were very thoughtful about when they should intervene and whether their own racial identity would affect whether they Uh, should intervene, you know, like if a black kid victimized an Asian kid, should another black kid, would that be a reason for a a bystander black kid to feel like they should intervene? And the students had like really fascinating and and different things to say about that, where some of the black students said, yes, if it's another black student, that person is doing something that makes your group look bad and you have more of a responsibility to keep them from doing it. So some other students thought, well, maybe I should intervene, but actually it's harder to intervene. 
if it's a member of the same group because some people are are going to think that you are breaking solidarity with your group if you do that. And that that's just a, a fascinating acknowledgement. I mean, that person wasn't saying that that sense of solidarity was good in any way. They were just being real about it. They were just saying, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just wouldn't intervene because people would say, well, you know, you're that's a black kid and you're black and you shouldn't be doing that. So I see those kinds of conversations about, about responsibility as being something that students need or high school students need to have a space to really engage in a systematic way of thinking about those issues. And I think a philosopher is, you know, very well positioned to help them think about issues like that. And philosophy is not a high school subject. So this is a reason in a way to sort of inject certain elements of philosophical thinking into discussions about race that are going to come up, even if you've got primarily a history course, these issues are going to come up because they're on the student's mind. And you want them to come up because they're going on in this, those kids lives and you want to help illuminate those lives and you want your class to be a place where they can bring those those kinds of concerns. Last question. Given the current political situation in the U.S., do you think it would be harder or easier to talk about race in our classrooms? Well, so my, my sense is that partly because of the police killings of the last couple of years, partly because the Black Lives Matter movement in response to those killings, that younger people are much more sort of aware of racial issues and concerned about racial issues. So, And that's true of both black and white and non-black, non-white. I mean, I just think this whole generation, I'm, you know, I don't know exactly what ages I'm talking about, but, you know, younger people in their late teens and, and 20s are more open to talking about race. I think the the impact of the Trump thing is, I think for some people, they want to talk about race more because they see that there's something really racially wrong with the Trump administration and with Trump himself personally, and they want to get a grip on it. And I think it's actually an opening for teachers to to talk about these these kinds of issues. And that's the impression that I'm that I'm getting. I mean, I'm teaching a course for teachers. I've, I did this last year also for teachers who teach at different levels in the Cambridge system. You know, of course, there's also a worry on the other side, which is this kind of polarization issue, where if you're weighing into something and you make it a pro-Trump or anti-Trump, and if you're teaching, you know, it really makes a lot of difference where you're teaching. If you're teaching in a place that has that divide, that's going to make it hard to do. But I think it's a reason to not just focus on Trump, but just sort of talk about the racial issues in their own terms and the integrity of the study of race. You know, it's a reason why schools should make it clear that race is an area of study that is just something that any literate person in the United States should should learn about, just like they should learn about chemistry. They should learn about race. And that that's a way of, in a way, removing it from kind of pure partisan framework. You know, you can't keep that partisanship from, you can't keep that out of the classroom entirely, but I think you can mute it. So in some ways, I think that people have more of a uh, responsibility to to teach about race now. And I do think students would be more receptive than they might have been 15 years ago or so when, when I was teaching. Larry, thank you so much for this conversation. I'm pretty sure that it's going to help a lot of folks. It's 
has helped a lot of folks, a lot of teachers, a lot of people who've thought about teaching race. So thank you so much. Well, you're very, very welcome. And you, you ask wonderful questions. And I, I do hope that some people will take this and kind of head in this high school direction or at least consider. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.